0: Welcome to Shipwreck Sunday, where we investigate disasters at sea and the impact that they have on the world today. My name is Eleanor, and here with me is my co-host Eric. Hello. Today we will be going over the sinking of the Sultana, the worst maritime disaster in American history. Before we dive in, we must inform you, the story does include details of a maritime disaster resulting in the sinking of a vessel, the American Civil War, and death that may be disturbing to some audiences. Viewer discretion is advised.
1: Please note, before we begin, that neither Eleanor nor I are mariners or experts in the field of maritime history, but we have done our research and will present the information as we understand it and with accurate nautical terminology. In today's episode, we will be including the basics of nautical terminology in the description below for anyone who needs it.
0: Thanks, Derek! Now, details regarding Sultana's career before her sinking are hazy, but we do know where she was built. Sultana was a wooden sidewheel steamer built by John Litherberry Boatyard in Cincinnati, Ohio, in 1863. Originally, she was owned by Captain Preston Lodwick, but was then sold to a consortium that included Captain James Cass Mason, who would later be her master. She was the fifth paddlewheel steamer by the name Sultana. Sultana was built for speed and capacity, measuring 260 feet long and having a 39 foot beam and 7 foot draft. She displaced 1,719 short tons with four decks and a capacity for 376 passengers and 85 crew, with plenty of room left for cargo. Sultana was propelled by two 34 foot paddle wheels that were driven by four fire tube boilers.
1: What's the difference between a fire tube boiler and your regular run-of-the-mill boiler?
0: A fire tube boiler, the likes of which were introduced in 1848, had the possibility to generate twice as much steam per fuel load as normal flue boilers. A flue boiler, or shell boiler, is just your typical hollow boiler that is meant to supply steam-to-steam engines for clarification. Unfortunately, though these fire tube boilers were more efficient, there was a huge trade-off in terms of safety. This is because the water levels in tubular systems has to be carefully observed and maintained at all times. The areas between the flues clogs easily, and sediment and mineral buildup around the boiler sides and tubes was difficult to scrape off, especially if the river water being used contained excess sediment. Even the tiniest dip in water level can cause hot spots that lead to metal fatigue, which increases the risk of a boiler explosion. And with most paddle wheel steamers being constructed from wood, an explosion like this would be absolutely devastating.
1: As for Sultana's background before her sinking, little is known other than she was intended for the Mississippi cotton trade. She was transported passengers and freight dutifully for the couple years she was in service before being contracted to rescue Union prisoners of war from Confederate prisons. During the American Civil War, both the Union and Confederacy detained prisoners of war between the years of 1861 and 1865. From the start of the war all the way until 1863, the parole system between the two factions was rather civil and most prisoners were swapped relatively quickly. In 1863, the singular piece of civility between the two warring sides broke down as the Confederates refused to treat black and white Union prisoners equally, thus leading both sides to hold a staggering number of prisoners.
0: Records tell us there were 211,411 Union soldiers captured total, with 16,668 of them paroled and 30,218 dying in captivity. The others were released upon the cessation of the war. As for Confederate soldiers, there were 462,684 captured total, with 279,769 of these soldiers being paroled, and 25,976 dying in captivity. This breaks down into a 12% of Confederate prisoners dying in captivity in northern prisons, while 15.5% of Union soldiers in southern prisons died in captivity. Professor Lorian Foote of Texas A&M University, who specializes in the American Civil War, is quoted as saying, "...the suffering of prisoners did more to inhibit post-war reconciliation than any other episode of the war."
1: On April 13, 1865, Sultana left St. Louis, Missouri, headed for New Orleans, Louisiana. On the morning of April 15, she was docked in Cairo, Illinois, when the news of Abraham Lincoln's assassination reached the city. Upon hearing this, Captain Mason took an armload of Cairo newspaper and headed south to spread the news further since he knew telegraph communication with the southern states had been almost entirely cut off since the onset of the American Civil War, which had only recently ended and from which the wounds were still fresh.
0: Sultana was to be tasked with rescuing these Union POWs, and this potential contract was enticing to the captain of Sultana, Captain James Cass Mason. The United States was willing to pay $2.75 per enlisted soldier and $8 per any officer to any steamship captain willing to take a group of these POWs north. Captain Reuben Hatch, the chief quartermaster at Vicksburg, was aware that Mason found himself short on funds and proposed to him that if he brought back at least 1,400 soldiers, Hatch would give Mason an extra kickback for the effort. Of course, Mason agreed readily.
1: Sultana departed Vicksburg, heading downriver to New Orleans, continuing to hand out newspapers from Cairo to spread the news of the assassination. On April 21, 1865, with about 70 cabin and deck passengers, a small amount of livestock and 85 crew members, Sultana left New Orleans and about 10 hours south of Vicksburg, one of the four fire tube boilers sprang a pretty serious leak. Sultana reduced pressure and limped to Vicksburg for much more needed repairs as well as to pick up the load of POWs as promised. While the mechanic worked on the leaky boiler, paroled prisoners from Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Kentucky, Tennessee, and West Virginia were brought down from their parole camp to Sultana.
0: The mechanic informed Captain Mason that a ruptured seam needed to be cut out and replaced, but Captain Mason knew this costly repair would take a few days, and his POWs, aka his payday, would go to another steamer if they waited that long. This is where a huge misstep would be taken. Instead of replacing this seam for the safety of the crew and the vessel, Captain Mason and his chief engineer, Nathan Wittringer, convinced the mechanic to makeshift a temporary repair by hammering the bulging boilerplate and riveting a patch of thinner plating over the seam. This MacGyvered fix took only a day instead of two or three, allowing Sultana to take the POWs.
1: Another unfortunate circumstance was about to happen for Sultana. Well, at least to us, to Captain Mason, he was probably only seeing dollar signs. As we know, Hatch had suggested Mason take maximum 1,400 POWs. However, there was a mix-up with the parole camp books and possibly bribes paid to other steamboat captains, causing the Union officer in charge of loading these POWs, Captain George Augustus Williams, to place every single POW from the parole camp on Sultana. He believed there were fewer than 1,500. And although Sultana could only legally carry 376, she left Vicksburg with a shocking 2,130 people on board. Of these 2,130 people, 85 were crew, and 1,953 were paroled prisoners. 22 were guards from the 58th Ohio Volunteer Infantry, and 70 were fair-paying regular cabin passengers. One could say people were stuffed onto Sultana like sardines in a can, being far too overcrowded to be considered safe.
0: POWs in both the Union and Confederacy camps were often malnourished and sickly by the time they were paroled. And luckily for many of these POWs, they had recovered a bit from their stay in the parole camp before boarding Sultana. These men were packed into any and every open available space, although all of the cabins were already filled with paying passengers. The overflow was enormous, causing the deck to creak and sag in some places, having to be reinforced with wooden beams.
1: Bad things typically come in threes. The first was the faulty repair, and the second was the overloading of POWs. The third is the incredible high level of the Mississippi River that year, as it was one of the worst spring floods in the river's history. The Mississippi lapped over her banks and swelled, spreading out three miles wider than she is normally. Trees that normally towered over the river were almost swallowed entirely, with only the tops visible below the fast-moving water. Also with the water traversing over land that normally never touched the river, excess sediment mixed into the water, as we learned earlier, that can be detrimental for her fire tube boilers. On April 26, Sultana stopped in Helena, Arkansas, Here, photographer Thomas W. Banks took a photograph of the overcrowded ship, and then Sultana was off to Memphis, Tennessee. She arrived around 7 p.m., and the crew unloading around 120 tons of sugar from the cargo hold, with 200 men also disembarking. These 200 men probably considered themselves lucky later. Around midnight that evening, Sultana left Memphis and went a short distance up the river to take on a load of coal from some coal barges before starting north again around 1 a.m.
0: An hour later, around 2 a.m. on April 27, 1865, Sultana was about seven miles north of Memphis when her boilers suddenly exploded without warning. First, only one of the boilers exploded, followed by two more in the blink of an eye. This steam explosion was gigantic, coming from the top rear of the boilers and going upward at a 45-degree angle. It tore through the crowded decks above and completely leveled the pilot house, leaving Sultana without a pilot to steer the boat. This rendered her adrift, and burning nonetheless. The explosion sent some of the deck passengers flying through the air and into the Mississippi River, while also destroying a large steamer section. After an indeterminate amount of time, the twin smokestacks tumbled. The starboard stack fell aft into the gaping hole, while the port fell forward onto the crowded forward section of the upper deck ringing the ship's bell as it toppled. This part of the deck collapsed onto the middle deck below, killing and trapping the passengers on it in a heap of burning wreckage. Fortunately, the railings around the twin openings of the main stairway were sturdy enough to keep the upper deck from completely crushing the middle deck below in this section. The men that were there around these twin openings took advantage of the bit of shelter available to them and crawled under the wreckage, heading down the main stairwell. Further aft, the collapsing decks formed a steep slope that led down into the now-exposed furnace boxes and the broken wood caught fire, turning what was left of the superstructure into a massive inferno. Survivors screamed and cried as they ran in a panic for the water, looking to be saved from the flames. However, especially for the POWs, many of them were in a weakened state and were unable to muster enough strength to save themselves, instead clinging to one another and going down in large groups together.
1: While this chaos ensued, a steamer heading southbound by the name of Bostona was heading downriver on her maiden voyage following refurbishment and arrived on the scene around 2.30 am, rescuing what could only be described as scores of people. There was not a determined number of survivors rescued by Bostona. At this time, dozens of people floated past the Memphis waterfront and called out for help until they were noticed by the crews of docked steamboats and United States warships. These crews immediately set out to rescue these survivors who floated past. Other ships eventually joined the rescue effort, including the steamers Pocahontas, Silver Spray, and Jenny Lind, as well as the Navy ironclad USS Essex No, not the whaling ship we have previously talked about, and the side-wheel gunboat USS Tyler. The Smoking Hulk of Sultana drifted six miles to the west bank of the river and finally sank around 7 a.m. near Mound City and what is present-day Marion, Arkansas.
0: The passengers who managed to leap into the water and save themselves now faced a different problem. Due to the incredible flooding, the Mississippi was ice cold. Many of those who didn't burn to death on the ship died in the water of either hypothermia or drowning. Some survivors were found clinging to the tops of the submerged trees that usually lined the riverbanks, begging for help and gasping for air. Bodies of victims continued to be found downriver for months after the sinking of Sultana, some as far as Vicksburg, though many bodies of victims were sadly never recovered. Most of Sultana's officers, including Captain Mason who was desperately trying to make his living, ended up among the perished.
1: Due to spotty records, it is difficult to pinpoint an exact death toll. However, with recent evidence, it is estimated that 1,169 died. From May 19, 1865 to 1880, different estimates of the dead ranged from 1100 to 1547, with survivors being estimated at 931 initially, though now it is believed to be 961. The dead soldiers whose bodies were recovered were interred at the Fort Pickering Cemetery in Memphis. A year later, the US government established the Memphis National Cemetery, and the bodies were exhumed and moved there. Three civilian victims of Sultana were interred at Elmwood Cemetery in Memphis. The fate of the other recovered victims' bodies is unknown.
0: Due to the fact that Union forces had captured Memphis during the Civil War in 1862, it had been turned into a supply and recuperation city, so the numerous local hospitals treated the roughly 760 survivors with the latest medical equipment, which was still pretty limited in 1865, and trained medical staff. Of this group, only 31 survivors died between April 28 and June 28. Despite the hostile Union occupation, newspapers reported that Memphis residents felt sympathy for the survivors of the disaster. A minstrel group that had traveled on the Sultana before getting off at Memphis, part of that lucky 200, was the Chicago Opera Troupe, and they staged a benefit performance that raised $1,000 for the survivors. This amount of money would equate to roughly $18,176 in 2022.
1: In December 1885, the northern survivors of Sultana lived in the states of Indiana, Michigan, and Ohio began attending annual reunions forming the National Sultana Survivors Association. The group settled on meeting in Toledo, Ohio area, and with inspiration from their northern comrades, the southern survivors, a group of men from Tennessee and Kentucky, began meeting later in 1889 in Knoxville, Tennessee. Both groups made their meetings as close to April 27th anniversary date as they could, corresponding with each other and sharing title of Nation Sultana Survivors Association. They continued to meet year after year, and as time passed, fewer and fewer survivors made it to the annual meetings as they passed away.
0: Only a handful of survivors could attend the reunions by the mid-1920s, with only two men attending the Southern Reunion in 1929. The following year, 1930, only one man showed up. The last Northern survivor, Private Jordan Barr of the 15th Michigan Volunteer Infantry Regiment, passed away of natural causes on May 16, 1938, at the age of 93. The last survivor of the Sultana disaster, who was from the South, Private Charles M. Eldridge of the 3rd Tennessee Cavalry Regiment, died of natural causes at his home on September 8, 1941, at the age of 96, more than 76 years after the Sultana sank to the bottom of the Mississippi.
1: As for the official cause of the Sultana explosion, it was determined after to be due to the mismanagement of the water levels in the boilers and was worsened by the overloading of the vessel and the fact that it was top heavy. Her four fire tube boilers were interconnected and mounted side by side so that in the event Sultana tipped sideways, water would run out of the highest boiler. The fires still burning against the then empty boiler created hot spots and when the boat tipped the other way, the water rushing back into the empty boiler would hit the hot spots and flash instantly to steam, creating a huge sudden surge in pressure. This would have been mitigated, if not entirely prevented, by keeping higher water levels in the boilers. The official inquiry into the Sultana ultimately found that the boilers exploded due to the combined effects of low water levels, the fault repair made a few days earlier, and careening.
0: The most recent investigation into the disaster was done by Pat Jennings, the principal engineer of Hartford Steam Boiler Inspection and Insurance Company, formed in 1866 due to the Sultana explosion. He determined that three main factors led to the explosion, and they were, number one, the metal used in the making of the boilers, called charcoal hammered number one, becomes brittle when exposed to prolonged heating and cooling. After 1879, Charcoal Hammered number 1 was no longer used in the production of boilers because of this. The use of the Mississippi River's sediment-rich water to feed the boilers tended to clog the boiler between the flues, or the sediment would settle on the bottom and leave hot spots. And third, the tubular boilers were filled with 24 horizontal 5-inch flues, and being so closely packed together in a 48-inch diameter boiler tended to cause the muddy sediment to form pockets of heat and were extremely hard to clean. The usage of tubular boilers ceased on steamboats on the lower Mississippi after two more steamships with tubular boilers exploded shortly after Sultana.
1: Though this is the official explanation for the disaster, there are some interesting theories that have been brought forward over the years. For example, in 1888, a St. Louis man named William Streeter claimed that while drinking in a saloon one evening, his former business partner Robert Loudon made a wild confession to having sabotaged Sultana by the use of a coal torpedo. Loudon was a former agent for the Confederacy and had caused the burning of the steamboat Ruth. Oddly enough, there is a bit of evidence that may lend some validity to Loudon's story. What appeared to be a piece of artillery shell was later recovered from the sunken wreck. But Loudon's confession is controversial and the official explanation is what most scholars believe happened. His claim is disproven and taken as purely bravado due to the location of the explosion being far from the fireboxes where he claimed the cold torpedo to have hit.
0: In May of 1886, a claim came forward anonymously that Second Lieutenant James Worthington Barrett, an ex-prisoner and passenger on Sultana, had caused the explosion himself. Barrett was not only a POW during the American Civil War, but a veteran of the Mexican-American War and had been captured at the Battle of Franklin. He was injured on Sultana, being honorably discharged in 1865, and it is highly unlikely he sabotaged the steamship since he had no clear motive, especially while he was on board.
1: Later in 1903, yet another claim came forward that Sultana had been sabotaged this time by a Tennessee farmer who lived on the riverbanks and cut wood for the passing steamships. After a few of the Union gunboats had taken his wares and not paid for them, the farmer allegedly hollowed out one of the logs, filled it with gunpowder, and then left it on the woodpile to be picked up by the next unsuspecting steamship. This next ship apparently being Sultana. However, this is impossible since Sultana ran off of coal instead of wood.
0: On July 2, 2014, 149 years after the disaster, an episode of the PBS series History Detectives aired that focused on the sinking of Sultana. Set on reviewing the evidence and settling the debate on the cause of the explosion, they were thorough in disputing any claims of sabotage and instead focused on the question of why Sultana was allowed to leave port while so densely overpopulated. The report placed the blame firmly on Captain Reuben Hatch, who had convinced Captain Mason to transport POWs, since he had a long history of incompetence and corruption. It was found that he primarily was able to keep his employment due to his political affiliations being the younger brother of Illinois politician Osias M. Hatch, an advisor and dear friend of President Abraham Lincoln. During the American Civil War, his incompetence and appetite for thievery were on full display, Hatch stealing thousands of dollars from the United States government. Due to this, he was court-martialed, but managed to get letters of glowing recommendation from none other than President Lincoln and General Ulysses S. Grant, who would also later become President of the United States. These letters are still in existence, being kept in the National Archives in Washington, D.C., After the explosion, Hatch refused three court subpoenas to appear in the inquiry and testify, dying in 1871 and never facing consequences for his actions.
1: He wasn't the only one that dodged accountability for their actions that caused the explosion and sinking of Sultana, however. In fact, no one was ever truly held accountable, really. Captain Frederick Speed, a union officer and the man responsible for sending 1,953 paroled POWs into Vicksburg from the parole camp, was charged with grossly overcrowding Sultana and found guilty of this crime. His guilty charge was overturned by the Judge Advocate General of the United States Army because Speed had been at the parole camp all day and he had not personally placed any of the soldiers on the Sultana himself. Captain George Williams, who actually had placed the men on board, was a regular army officer and so the military decided against going after one of their own men and he was never charged for negligence. Captain Mason died on the Sultana and was never able to be charged. So ultimately, the call for justice for the largest maritime disaster the United States has ever known went unanswered.
0: Since 1865, the flow of the Mississippi River has moved two miles east of its course when Sultana met her fate. And so in 1982, when what was believed to be the wreckage was uncovered, it was found beneath a soybean field in Arkansas, roughly four miles from Memphis, Tennessee. The wreckage was found by Memphis attorney, Jerry O. Potter, and he uncovered blackened wooden deck planks and timbers roughly 32 feet beneath the soybean field. This episode hopes to commemorate the tragedy of the Sultana, and to remember its victims and survivors. We also hope to bring light to this tragedy, as it was overshadowed and largely forgotten due to the tragic assassination of President Lincoln. We would also like to acknowledge the fact that today is September 11th, and our hearts go out to the families and friends of those lost in the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Centers. We will never forget.
1: Thank you for tuning in to Shipwreck Sunday. If you like this episode and are listening on YouTube, please give us a like, leave us a comment, and subscribe to our channel. If you like this episode and are listening on Spotify, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, or another podcast service, please subscribe for more content and leave us a five-star review, as it does help us reach more listeners like you. Tune in next Sunday for the story of SS Edmund Fitzgerald, the largest Great Lakes freighter to have ever sunk there. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.